Time to start. The riot. You guys are in for a riot tonight. <laughs> Talking about uh, prison. There, Luke. Of course, you, think, you can think of prison riots. We <laughs> um, had a pretty crazy one in Acts 19. And one thing the history of Christianity has taught us that the church thrives whenever it has persecution. And that's when it's at its best as far as, as growth. And whenever the church creates issues by just using the Word of God, uh, it will thrive in the, the purest sense because people that don't like truth get very angry at it. We've seen that all the way through Acts. Uh, not trying to get people angry at us. That's, not, that's the last thing we want to do. But the persecuted church confronted the culture for what it was just by preaching truth. And if it offends somebody because of the sinful lifestyle that they have, then if they don't want to change and have their hearts softened, then what's going to happen? They're going to get hardened. They're going to get very angry. I think it explains what what is happening with uh, the world today and um, why sometimes, you know, we, we don't see success sometimes in people coming to the Lord. So it seems like most often people will get mad uh, because that uh, you're judging them just simply for the fact that you are using scripture, scripture, but if the church becomes a friend of the system, which it has down through the years too, then that's where it gets into all sorts of trouble. And um, that means going along with all the sociological and the political games. And once uh, they get uh, into that, the church becomes very weakened. And in this 19th chapter of the book of Acts, we find ourselves in the city of Ephesus, a very social city, a very political city, a very large city, an active city, a lot of things going on there. Apostle Paul comes into town, and he's been there for three years, which I find amazing. It's amazing because God is, uh, by His grace, is making the church grow in a city that is so sinful and so wicked and so evil and so pagan and so satanic and occultic, and yet the church is started there. And this is the third missionary of Paul, missionary journey. And uh, we see that... um, He is spreading the gospel all over the known world, and he and and others. He started there in the synagogue, went three months, which I also find very interesting, because a lot of times he's in there once and they kick him out. Here it's three months. And there were some people who were hardened, and whenever the gospel is presented, that will happen. But there were some who believed. Matter of fact, there were many who believed. The Jews had become evangelized, good newsed. They were given the gospel. And um, we know that verse 10 in Acts 19 says that all that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Not only in the synagogue, but also outside, or some of the Greeks that even came to the synagogue. And they heard the word, they became believers. And so God established a church in Ephesus. It became a beachhead for evangelism for all of Asia, Asia Minor. Um, we um, talked about uh, this last week that even this, probably the seven churches that we find in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 were products of the gospel being preached in Ephesus and then others went out and took it to these other places all throughout Asia. They really heard that the Word of God uh, was uh, was truth. Mightily, it says in verse 20 of Acts 19, so mightily grew the Word of God and prevailed. That was the verse that we ended on last week. The Word of God uh, is dominating. And, and that's the key. That's the key to everything. It's the Word of God that's being preached, a dominating force. If you go back to... Uh, Go back to Acts chapter 12, verse 24. And uh, this is at the time of Herod's 
death that he had. The worms ate him. And, and then at the end of that uh, chapter, it says, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Not just added, but multiplied. And if you go to, um, if you uh, back in Acts chapter six, I think it's in verse seven, when there was great victory. Verse seven: the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly, just like multiplied in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's encouraging, isn't it? The very religious people that you would think would not want to be involved in this at all and that would be persecuting them came to faith. And that was uh, right there in Jerusalem. And uh, so we, we see that's been the pattern um, in Acts 19 where we're at right now. If you look at verse 9, it says, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, before the people he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So there it is there. So, you know, people were speaking evil about Christianity, and uh, then uh, suddenly after that we see exorcist being involved in this and uh, these these fakes they were mimics they were mimicking what Christianity was doing with the supernatural things that were happening and um, they tried to confuse the issue and yet we see that the word of God prevails over that and of course Satan was right behind all that wasn't he and the occultic world there that was trying to um, wreak havoc and so what we're coming to then is something that is not surprising. Matter of fact, it's very predictable. When you see the Word of God multiply and things are going really good and going up, you can bet, just keep following the, the, that chapter or the next chapter or somewhere along the line, and we'll see that it will have opposition. It always has, always will. And so the, the Word prevails. It'll progress. And it keeps occurring like that, then Satan will find will do the opposition and will find that he will bring along the persecution, which is really another victory for the church because the church really blooms and blossoms then. So you look at it historically, you look at it scripturally, and there it is. In Jerusalem, for example, Satan sent the opposition against an organized um, uh, Christianity. And he actually brought in an organized religion. And, of course, it had already been there. He just made it really come out. It was the, the Judaizers, right, in, in Judaism. In Damascus, it was the same kind of thing. In Antioch, it was opposition of personal prejudice and uh, envy. Uh, whenever they went to Lystra, it was the opposition of ignorant paganism there in the Galatian area. Um, uh, let's see. I'm, I'm trying to. In Philippi, you had an angry society against him there, or sorcery that was involved. In Thessalonica, it was opposition of a political revolution. And at Athens, you, you remember there a cultured hedonism with their philosophy that they had. And of course, in the way that they were thinking, it was more or less just making fun of Christianity. And in Corinth, uh, all the skepticism, even from the ones who'd become uh, Christians were doubting Paul's apostleship. And he had to write two letters to them. Uh, pretty scathing letters, weren't they? And there was actually a third, which we don't have. So, guess what? We're in Ephesus. Are you ready for the battle? <laughs> and we'll see. And when you look at this from the perch and look down on it, and, and you can look back in the past... I think it's interesting because you, you tend to look at the way that God sees it because the story has already been written and you know how it ends and it's good. And most people would say, oh, this is not good. We've got something going here and, and now look at what the enemy's doing. And God is saying, look at this. I'm going to make this even better. I'm, I'm putting my hand in here and I'm stirring things around and I'm always in it. He's in everything. 
And that's good to know. Because we can look at that and we can say, yeah, I, I believe that. The thing is, when reality hits and things come against us, we tend not to look back at what has happened in Scripture and we tend to think, oh no, what's going to go on? What do I do now? And well, what's God going to do? I mean, you know, has He ran out of uh, guiding us? <laughs> no, he, he's, he's in this. That's this is a sovereign God. But our problem is, God is in charge of it, but we know that He's using man in order to bring them to fail Him to what He has for us, but He's yeah, what looks like failure is God's using that really for uh, some really good things. Well, in Ephesus, you have a kind of a pseudo-religious materialism going here. and you, We have idolatry here that we'll be looking at tonight. And Last week, we looked at the sorcery and the magic and the, and the, the fake spirituality that they had there. Uh, so anyway, that's um, kind of where we're heading tonight in, in this the right. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You for showing us who You are and, and how You work. And we constantly see a sovereign God. We believe in an absolute sovereign God who um, is involved in every matter, whether it be small, whether it be big. We know that, but yet when we live our lives... Sometimes we tend to forget that. Help us to ever be thinking upon how you are in control of even the least little things because you do care. And it is your joy to be able to do things that seemingly is not anything that looks good. And you produce things into uh, really for your glory. And so as we look at this tonight, even something that looks so hectic, we know that there is a reason for this story. And help us to gain a little more insight as your Spirit uh, leads us into your truth and that we can further our walks to, to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, Acts 19, verse 21 through 41, 20 verses. And it almost makes you wonder, why would God give us this? It, it's just, it seems like it's a story. Uh, this is historical. All of this is historical. But it's it's um, it just reads like a story. It's interesting. But I, there's a lot of spiritual matters here. You don't really see a lot of deep doctrine. There's not a lot of word studies that we're really going to get into here. You know, usually in our Bible studies, we like to break those things down, go into it. Not that we're not, but it's um, it's a narrative. It's a historical narrative. And behind it all, we know God is doing something here. Verse 21 says, um, Now, after these things were finished... Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Just a couple of verses that don't seem to go along with the riot. And um, they're in between a section that dealt with all the magic practices and such and the burning of the of the books and uh, that were worth, uh, what, 50,000 pieces of silver, which was immense. It could be equal to, to today to millions of dollars that they burn up. Uh, that's what it was worth. And all the little things that went along with the books. Um, that means there was absolute repentance here amongst these people. And so you say, well, how does this tie in with this? Okay, Paul's ready to go. And what he's doing, he's always making plans. Because he's thinking about where he's going to go next. And what he's going to do after that. What is he going to do with some of the people that are uh, ministering? And he, uh, he moves them around. Well, after these things were ended, that is, after the victory over the magic, after these things, we're finished. That little deal we did there. Uh, verse 19, verse 20. Um, Paul in the Spirit purposed in the Spirit, or in his own mind. Literally, that's, that's the idea. He was going to pass through Macedonia, Achaia, 
go to Jerusalem, go to Rome, <clears throat> then go to Spain. Uh, I mean, he has all different plans to do. Of course, Lord willing. <clears throat> and so after he sees that the church is established, uh, he's not immediately going here at this very moment, soon as that uh, magic thing was done. and uh, But he, he is getting ready to move on after that, the three years. So um, he has set up what constitutes a very solid church. He has plenty of people there that can lead the church. He's not worried about if he uh, what if he leaves and uh, then the church just dies. That's not going to happen. It's growing. It's multiplying. It's the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God. And uh, there have been men there that have heard his teaching for three years. Some of them uh, probably heard him night and day. I mean, they had seminary teaching from maybe one of the best teachers ever outside of Christ. Can you imagine sitting underneath the Apostle Paul? Three years would be like a lifetime to most people. And so I think uh, these people are very well equipped uh, to do that. So he's he has quite a plan to go, and uh, so he wants to go west. And uh, you say, well, what what is he doing there? What, why is he going to Macedonia and Achaia? You know, he's been there. Why does he want to go west? Well, um, he has a collection to make. Because he's thinking he's going to go to Jerusalem, but first he's going to have to go to some places and make a collection and then take it back to Jerusalem because the people there are poor. They're in need. And so he's thinking about them. And uh, I, I think that Paul has a mind that is just always in tune with things that need to be done. But he's in tune with the Lord. And I think it's the Lord putting it on his heart to do these things. And so he's going to go back through the churches that has been set up and the people know him and he's going to say, hey, the people in Jerusalem are hurting really bad and uh, we need to get them some money to meet some needs that are there. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And by the way, you know where he wrote 1 Corinthians from? Ephesus. First Corinthians nine one. Uh, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Um, then he talks about um, them uh, giving him. My defense to those who examine me is this: Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is He? Or is He speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar after their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And um, it goes on. You can see he's addressing the Corinthians and that they are to give um, to the work of the ministry. And he's talking about... um, people like himself, Barnabas, others administered, but he says that I would not cause a problem. I chose not to take the collection for myself. And of course, he, you know, we, uh, he had his own business, but he's talking about stewardship and for them to uh, serve people. And uh, so he's getting them ready as he will send out, and we see in that next verse, Timothy and Erastus. And they're going to go there before he goes. He stays in Ephesus, still does some more teaching, sends them out, 
tells them what Paul's going to do. He has the you know a letter written to them, and so that when he comes, that they will be prepared. And I think it's in First Corinthians, is it chapter sixteen, I believe, where they um, would take up the offering on the first day of the week. So, and that was to them. And so, whenever he got there, it'd be ready. And, and of course, Corinth is uh, you know a pretty major church there. But he really has to convince them. He's always having to defend himself, his apostleship, and uh, what the ministry is about. Uh, they were pagan headed. You know, and he's still hanging on to some of that. Boy, you have the Apostle Paul hitting hitting real hard, and he says, "Here's the issue, and here's what this is." So, uh, collection that would be there. Look in Romans chapter fifteen, twenty five and twenty six. But now I'm going to Jerusalem, serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia. That's where he's going to be heading, right? Now he's talking about passing it. Have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So this is his this is his trip on the third missionary journey. They know him well. He knows them, and um, so the the churches there um, did make the collection and contributed to the saints in Jerusalem. And so you can see how God works uh, in all that. And I think there's a couple of really good things that happen out of this. First of all, not only do the saints in Jerusalem have a need, but the body of Christ that's outside of Jerusalem, and the church is a worldwide organism, isn't it? It can prove the love and unity that they have for them, and they don't even know them. Haven't ever met them, don't have any idea what they look like, and yet... They're taking up a collection and giving money to these people. And that's where the church started. And that's what Paul has a concern. And he knows it can bring in um, uh, unity. And I, I think there's a practicality here of love, isn't there? So I, you see uh, a need, and then you see the love. And now these people out there in Corinth and other areas, they know that they've contributed to people who were in need and they have a special sense uh, of, of loving others and reaching out like they'd never done before. So it's a good training area for them to learn about unity and love. And it's great for the Jews back in Jerusalem who are, let's say, Christians, for instance, and they're saying, wow, these Gentile Christians are something. We don't even know them and look what they're heaping upon us. So really practical, you know, it's really putting to use uh, just the simplicity of, of giving money for the sake of somebody else. I think that's that's rather incredible. Look in Acts twenty one verse seventeen. Paul is going to go in that area that we're talking about. Look in verse seventy. After we arrived in Jerusalem, now this is uh, Luke talking about past tense. There, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us, James and elders present. Okay, um, but you know when Paul went there to Jerusalem, and you know he used to be working for the Jews from there, and now he's a Christian coming there, and we know that when he had been there before, that uh, they were kind of standoffish because he had persecuted the church. But look what he's doing; he's gathering. Stuff that they money and uh, for something that they needed, and now he's a part of that, a huge part. Look in Romans 13. Paul kept wanting to go back to Jerusalem, but then the other churches that he wanted to go to, and then he wanted to go to Rome. And it's not that he just wants to travel. He he knows what happens when you travel. You can get stuck out into the deep, the ocean. Uh, robbers can get you on the road. You know, there's one story after another how he had in, in his travels, but you would think, okay, that's enough of the journeys. <laughs> no, he just kept on wanting to do that. And now it's been, you know, time is moving on. We're in the third journey already. But in Romans, what did I say? One thirteen. Get there, Dennis. Okay. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have prevented so far that I may obtain some fruit among you 
even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So why does he want to go to Rome? They already have a church there. And what is his policy? He actually sets up in churches where there have been no churches. This time he wants to go to Rome. Well, it's kind of like the capital of the world. And he's been in some major provinces. Major cities is where he has been. But he wants to go to Rome there, and he says it there, that I, maybe I can, I can help bring along some more fruit uh, as, as you've already done. And um, so uh, I want to be part of it there. I, I want to give the gospel out there uh, along with you. I, I want to go to the place that has made, makes such of an impact. So he wants to reproduce people. It's a reproduction evangelism um, organization that, that he has and uh, where you would win some people to Christ and establish a church. A church grows. Those people then go out and they go to others and you call it multiplication. And that's the process we've seen all along for 19 chapters and on and on. When you conquer an area, then you want to go and conquer some more areas. Then you want to come back and go through those places that you're at make sure things are going right. And um, and he even wanted to go to Spain. And um, so as you can see, he, he was going way out there. Timothy and Erastus. I might be spending a lot more on this these two verses than I really intended, but Timothy and Erastus, we already explained, he's going to send them out, uh, Macedonia and Achaia, first of all, and try to you know get some things going there and prepare them. And so that's whenever he wrote the Corinthians. He, he wrote them, and he, he, so he, he, he said all this. And, and 1 Corinthians 16.8, right at the end of the letter, I think this kind of sets it up and helps us into the next section. I find this fascinating. But I will... Um, okay, starting at 15. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia. Remember? That's, and that's where he's at in Ephesus now as he's writing this letter. And he says, I will come to you, but I'm going to go to Macedonia uh, later. And perhaps I will stay with you or even sp- uh, spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. Do you like that? Lord willing. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. So, that's what's happening. It, 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 it's possible, and I'll explain later why we think it's probably in May Somewhere around that time, they had some uh, kind of like Olympic games there in Ephesus. And because the riot is going on. That's why some people say that it was probably in, in late spring. Pentecost is going to be coming up what we would know to be in probably around in June sometime. So he says, I'll remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide... Look at this. This is, this is a key right here. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me And there are many adversaries. A wide door, and there are many adversaries. When you have adversaries, you know that something is really happening for the good. (laughs) That's the way that Paul looks at it. And so this really, I hope that kind of sets it up. A lot of going around beating the bush there, but it's really not. That that tells you what, what the deal is, why he mentions Macedonia and Achaia and Timothy and Erastus and the collection of the saints and everything. And he's writing 1 Corinthians, having a wide door for evangelism. And then at the same time, he's going to get persecuted. <laughs> or they are. So now, because of the Word of God being preached, Satan is... Uh, going to have to get even more active. Verse 23, About that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. No small disturbance. That means a large disturbance. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. That means a lot of business. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, 
and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Money, the temple, money, religion. When they heard this, and were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, disciples wouldn't let him. Can't you just see him? Let me at him. Come on. Come on. <laughs> and they're holding him back. They're tackling him. Whatever they can do to keep him down. Uh, also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! <laughs> After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, What man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and to do nothing rash. For you brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events since there is no real cause for it. And this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. God is so... You know, it's, it's interesting the way that he works in this. Now, this could have caused a catastrophe. And all the Christians could have been led to, like, the Colosseum, like Rome had. This is a theater. A theater that could hold as many as 30,000 people. That's pretty good. Of course, you think of the stadiums today, and they can be double that. But that, that's a good-sized uh, theater that they're, uh, they're headed to there. Why would a people oppose Christians? You know, often ask yourself that. Christians throughout history, and sometimes they're not always this case, but usually they make the best neighbors. Christians are good workers on the job because they know that they are to do their work hardly as unto the Lord. They know their jobs are really something that God has given them, even though sometimes we have cause to say, I hate this job, but we're not supposed to say that, are we? Because God has given it to us. Sometimes jobs are hard. Sometimes it's not something that we like to do. We'd rather do other things. But actually, it's really a blessing that we have work um, in in this lifetime. And so God makes that kind of thing. They're, they're good citizens. For the most part, Christians should be the best citizens they are. Uh, dual citizenship, we're citizens here, but really our true citizenship is in heaven, and that's an eternal citizenship. Well, the reason is, is that there's an evil spiritual being who uh, is at the head of all of this. And I know in Ephesians chapter 6 it says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Even when you see those wicked political leaders saying and doing the things that they're doing, at the same time, it's not really that person that um, is really against us. It's really Satan. Um, they're just pawns. Believers confessed their sins and openly demonstrated their repentance by the burning of the books and uh, all the magic arts and everything that went with it. And the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And, um, you know, Satan is not going to put up with this. 
this was a stronghold that he had. And you know what? He says, okay, I've got to get at it. He's not going to be passive about this because the Word of God has made some people very angry. And Satan is going to make sure that people do something. So he's going to launch an attack. And um, I, I think sometimes if we don't have any opposition, maybe we ought to look around and say, wonder why we don't have any opposition. People oppose the gospel. They always have. Satan blinds the minds to the glory of Christ. You experience the glory of Christ? Don't you like to read about the glory of Christ? Isn't that what you know we live for? Uh, well, the average person does not. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. gives an explanation of what's going on in this world. Don't be surprised of all the things that are going on. The enemy is hard at work. And um, 2 Corinthians 4, I love this text here, starting at verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, in this sense, a little g, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They already have a wicked, evil heart, says in Ephesians. And then Satan comes along and just blinds them totally, where they can't have any common sense of what the gospel's about. So that they might not see, he blinds them, the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the only way people can see God is, is Christ. And so they're blinded so that they wouldn't see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ. Is that good news to hear about the glory of Christ? I think we've been talking about that on Sundays. And we'll continue on this, this Sunday morning. Um, about the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ. And uh, that's been a blessing, hasn't it? The glory of Christ. They can't see it because they've been blinded. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants, as slaves. We're, we're slaves. We're preaching about the glory of Christ, though. We have nothing to brag about ourselves, but it's all in Christ. And then we have this great, tremendous verse 6 that goes along with our verse 4. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. How do we know about the glory of God? Through the face of Jesus Christ. When we see the beauty of Christ, that's how we experience the glory of God. So the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The illumination of the very knowledge of the glory of God. You experience the glory of God? Transform us, transforms us, right? But we know 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that um, there are people who cannot accept or understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually appraised. 1 Corinthians 2.14 They cannot understand the Gospel or the truth. So the Word of God. What an impact. Um, back to our Acts 19. This is this is what's happening, and um, it um, we know that the the way uh, is making an impact. And of course, the way is what Christianity. Jesus said, "I am the way, truth, and the life." He is the way, and um, there's only one way. Acts four twelve says. Now we get into this Demetrius. Who is he? Well, he is a big man as far as the guild of silversmiths are concerned. They had guilds back then. Uh, we've heard of the guilds that they had in Europe. You know, the, the smiths, the artisans of the craft or whatever it is, and they'd band together and they'd be a part of, this, of these guilds. Well, evidently they had a guild in um, Ephesus. And they had no small gain. That means they were rich. 
And he was probably very well known. I think he was probably very wealthy, a very influential man as he gets these guys together. Uh, this is a big business that they're having. It's all, he also brings in the Temple of Diana, which is just huge. It's monstrous, 420 feet by 250 feet. It's a huge place. It's a treasure of gold and silver. People came from all over the world to see this. Everybody knew about it. And it says, says it right here in our passage. Uh, a wealthy. It was, they were, uh, there were pillars uh, a lot of pillars in this particular building, and you would have funds, money coming from the, all the leaders around the known world, and they would send in money to this place, and then people go visit. It was one of the seven wonders of the world originally, and uh, so you'd have pilgrims come in there, tourists, quite a tourist trap it probably was. People would come in there and buy their idols buy their idols right at the temple and in Ephesus, and then they'd take them home. Uh, wow, that's one thing to have idols, but to buy it right there. So you can imagine the business that they had in this large city and uh, you know how much that comes into play today when um, things start affecting people's business. They get uh, rather consumed with it, and they'll do anything to um, to keep that going. Uh, it's all about the money. So um, it says that. Um, well, there was the art. You know, this Artemis, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, or Diana. There were the Artemis games that were something like, you know, Corinthians had their own Olympics. And, of course, Athens was known for the Olympics. That's where it really got all started. But they were really big into um, that kind of thing. So a lot of people are into town. And this is where this riot is really going to take place. You have people milling the streets, large, huge crowds, even bigger than they would ever have normally. Masses of people are swarming the city of, of, um, of Ephesus and probably at, his, at its highest level. And there they are making a mint. Household gods that they're selling for people to take back. Of course, you can look back in the Old Testament and you see the gods, the little idols that they made out of wood and uh, metals and silver. And these guys craft that. Boy, that was a big business. And uh, some of them probably really took great pride in what they made. Um, so, you know... God is is telling us about this riot, and we're into this for 20 verses, and I think it's really exciting to see how we see the success of Christianity, and it's being mouthed by the pagans themselves. I think this is very remarkable what what God does here. The pagans are admitting how successful Paul and Christianity and the Bible is. Uh, Take a look at it. Verse... um, he says, you know, uh, our prosperity, you know, depends on this business, this idolatry that we have. <laughs> uh, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia. You, you've seen what happened here in Ephesus, in this big city, but all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people. That means a lot of people. Saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. That's right. And then, not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless. If this thing gets, keeps going on what it's doing, this, this temple, that means so much. And people come from here from all over the world, and you know how we sell things to them, and how they donate money to uh, our temple and everything. Uh, Paul is, is getting ready to hack that thing down. <laughs> uh, all of Asia, it says 27, and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. One of the greatest places ever, that they're saying. Do you see what impact Christianity was making whenever the pagans actually tell the truth here about what Christianity is doing? That's what I think we need to grasp. I think it's one of the greatest apologetics when you can have the very enemy saying how big of a deal it is. And the rioters, they're going to become frustrated. There's really no one to blame in this whole deal. They didn't try to set it off. They didn't, they didn't march down the street and walk up to the Capitol or the, the, uh, the police stations. 
They didn't try to make something out of something, you know, and, and they weren't saying anything evil necessarily. Uh, they were talking about the false gods, but they weren't blaspheming uh, their, their religion and uh, they weren't stealing from the temple. There were people actually that uh, Paul mentions in Romans uh, chapter 2 about people that went into the temples and robbed temples. And that's where all the silver and the gold is at. They weren't doing that. And the, the man will say that. And then he says, this Paul has persuaded. This Paul. Oh, he had to make a lot of people angry. And they, they couldn't argue with him. And he's so committed to Christ. He's so committed to the gospel. And this one city just is, is turned on its head. And uh, he just turned the whole province into, uh, I think, just something that's amazing. Because he preached night and day. Every day of the week. Taught during the day, during the hot hours of the day, and then at night, all night long. And uh, what an effect he had. And he says he did it with tears later on when he visits the elders. Well, it's dealing with the pocketbooks. And uh, Demetrius says, guys, we're making our living off making these little shrines here. And um, the gospel, that they're, this, this thing they're preaching, it, it's fouling up our business. <laughs> We've got to do something about it. This is going to create an economic problem. Christianity was having such a spread of power there in, in that area. Uh, our God is being defamed. Our goddess is being defamed. And, and oh yeah, get it out of here. Yeah. yeah, take take that with you. Yeah, what was it that it was just a stump? Like it fell, you know, and what what is it? Like the arms broke off or something? Broke off, the foot back up again, fell down again, and I think the last time the head fell off. Power of God always wins, doesn't it? Anybody that would worship that. That's so it goes. (laughs) So Christianity, without even really having to um, protest or anything, just challenges the majesty of uh, Artemis there. The patriotism that they have there, I mean... Uh, a famous temple and it's venerated by the world and has a worldwide influence and uh, the whole reputation that they have is really going to spread out there and it says this is our claim to fame and this is going to ruin us. Um, So, and it might have. (laughs) Ephesus really was Artemis. I mean, uh, Artemis and Ephesus was so linked and so united. It was like that's really what they were about. Well, quickly, let's look at some characteristics of the riot. It says they were full of wrath. Full of wrath. Full of anger. That's really kind of funny, I think. I think Luke puts a little sense of, uh, uh, sense of humor here um, because the people just started yelling. I mean, they're angry. They don't even know what about. And they just start yelling. Can you imagine that? And that's why they think there's probably such a throng of people. Have you ever seen, if, if you were at a Super Bowl, where you know there can be as many as 100,000 people and they're out in the parking lot, and all of a sudden you get a, a swarm of people and they start marching into, into the stadium and people go, what's going on? What's happening? People probably looking at their, their iPhones saying, I'm going to try to pick up the information on this. But everybody's all gathering together and they all start yelling things and everything. And so people just start gathering in. They don't know what it's all about. But uh, there's a mob and there is yelling. So other people start yelling and, and uh, get into this. And they start getting angry too and quite a rage. And, um, um, and they start saying, Great Artemis of the Ephesians. That's what it is in the Greek, literally. Great Artemis. But great as Artemis, same thing. They're yelling to their God. That, that's really what they're, you know, let's do something. So they, they start yelling. And it's run wild. And that's typical of a riot. That's what happens. People get angry and they don't really know why. So we need to expect that. We've seen it uh, when um, it happened with Stephen, how they all gathered on him and stoned him, put him to death. And, uh, of course, he's preaching the Word. 
there's confusion. They, they head off to this theater. They're screaming their heads off. And that's the second characteristic of a mob is that uh, they're in confusion. And uh, they grab Gaius and Aristarchus. These men are from Macedonia. Paul uh, has them as fellow travelers. And if you, um, if you were to go to Ephesus today, there are a lot of ruins there, and that theater is still there. Now, had I had internet tonight, I would have brought that up because you can see the theater in Ephesus and see where it's located and everything. They've, they, through modern uh, technology and, and through, uh, um, of course, uh, all the things that they now have, they can uncover cities at a pretty good rate, a little bit better than ever before, and still preserve the cities. Um, anyway, traveling companions, they, they grab them. And Paul then says, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going in to, you know, there they, he's, his buddies have gone and they've been taken. And he says, I'm going into the theater. But he's restrained probably by Christians. But I do want to tell you, it's kind of interesting. He's also restrained or at least told not to go in there. He's warned by some Asiarchs. And he can say, Asiarchs, oh, that's just people from Asia there. Well, these are special people. Uh, the Asiarchs, if, if you happen to be... And what they do is they have two responsibilities. Promote worship of Rome and worship of the emperor. That's really what they're about. They come in and they're, they're kind of leaders in that sense. If you happen to be in Syria, they would have been called Syriacs. If, uh, let's say, if you're in uh, Galatian, they're in uh, they're, uh, Galatiarchs. Or Macedonia, Macedoniarchs. Uh, well, uh, yeah, something like that. And they would preside over the people, but it was promote Romanism. They, you know, they wanted the Greek realm to grasp the importance of how Rome was. And they preside over the games. And that's another reason why we think this is the, at this time of the year uh, in, in, in May. So they're protecting Paul on the basis maybe that he's a citizen of Rome, number one. Number two, they know that he is quite the enemy to them, and so he, they don't want anything to really get started here, and they're going to get in trouble if something breaks out in Ephesus, because they're going to have to answer to Rome. They're their own city. They rule their own, but they don't want to lose that freedom. So you've got somebody here that has some wisdom, worldly wisdom, but you know he's protecting Paul, or the Asiarchs are, and then this, then the mayor is going to also do that too and speak. So it's a typical mob scene. They had no idea what's going on. And you know what? They, they had no matches so they couldn't burn anything. You know, let's compare it to uh, uh, somebody winning a championship today. Like in Detroit or other cities like Philadelphia, where you have a championship won. Ohio State won this year, and they had riots, more or less people celebrating, but in the streets and at, uh, you know, in their, was it, is it uh, Columbus? Is that where they're from? Anyway, uh, there's no windows, so there's no windows to break, like down in Ferguson, breaking into uh, shops and such. Um all they can do is stand in the theater and scream and yell. There's no cars, so you can't overturn them. Doesn't that make you angry when you see people turning over cars? And there is no reason to do that? It's not like that person did anything to them. They just start turning them over. They did that in Ferguson. They do it over championship games when somebody's won, their, their favorite team has won. It gives you an opportunity with a whole big crowd to do things you wouldn't ordinarily do. And you think you're getting away with it. But it's interesting, the, the, uh, the guy that attempted to kill the, the policeman that shot him and hit him, um, kind of interesting about him. What's that? They found him and other things that he'd been involved in. He yeah. He had been breaking into the places, and they actually had cameras on him, and they, they showed that he had been on and a part of that from back in uh, earlier. Uh, there's no pens or, or markers that you can go around just defacing walls. They would have just torn that city up. They didn't have all that. But so they, they scream and yell and scream and yell and scream and yell for two hours. <laughs> That's what they did. And uh, they've got this Alexander and, and he's brought up and either he's a, a Jewish Christian. He is Jewish. Either he's a Jew who's a Christian or he's just Jewish. We don't know. 
But maybe the Jews put him up there and they say, even if he's Jewish Christian, uh, as far as the, uh, the Gentiles are concerned, they consider that just a sect of Judaism. It's still Judaism. Whatever it is, whether he's a straight Jew or whatever, uh, but they were under pressure and they put him up. Maybe he can defend this and say, the Jews didn't do it. You know, we, we didn't cause this. You know, maybe he's trying to put some kind of defense. And, and we don't know about this, Paul. We don't even agree with him. Or maybe the defendant. But um, anyway, uh, that's where you see Alexander uh, involved in that. So they just shove him up there and uh, they push him up there. And he's getting ready to tell everybody in, in this defense. And they don't even want to hear him. You know, boom, they just get louder. And. <laughs> And so, you know, he starts opening his mouth and they start screaming. And then uh, the last part of this, and we're, we're done. The calming of the riots done by the mayor or the secretary of the town council or the town assembly. He's the one that convenes the town meetings. He's an important citizen. And so he comes in there. He finally gets the people quieted after two hours. And he just reasons with them. And he says, hey, listen, if this continues to go on, we're going to be in trouble with Rome. If they see this, we're going to lose what position we have, as great as we are. And here you, you're you're blowing this, and uh, or the the Romans could at least impose a fine on them, or they lose their free government. So you know those were the facts, and I believe they're right. They they were scared to death that would happen, and he just says, hey, they don't steal, they don't blaspheme the the gods that are here. Um, and Christians are what? Wise as serpents. Gentle as doves. Harmless as doves. We're to be very strong in the Word of God, but yet, what? Gentle. Those two don't seem to match. But yes, they do when you have the fruit of the Spirit. And what a testimony in the mouth uh, here of this pagan mayor who speaks in this way. <laughs> as he's giving uh, real truth about these Christians. They don't rob the temples. They don't blaspheme our goddess. They don't commit sacrilege. They don't commit thievery here. And they're making these people from Ephesus and other Gentiles around just look terrible. What a quality of life that Christians have. That they would be commended by a pagan. And that does happen. When they do see that, they will tell. And even in history books that were written, uh, in the first few centuries, they uh, even when there was persecution, they would say how the Christians would respond even to that in in such a, a way that they did that was so peaceful, and um, it, it was amazing by them. Some people converted because of that; others didn't. But he says this is a legal issue. If if you have something to do with it, take it to court. Not out here. That isn't it amazing that right here in our own country you can have riots and displays of just like this. And um, it's, it's nice to see somebody who has a little wisdom uh, and that uh, speaks out and is able to maybe change, uh, maybe influence some thoughts. But I think the town clerk did a great favor for the Ephesians there. And um, I think he says, what have they done against us? Let's let them be. And it's not that he becomes a Christian there. Could have. We don't know. But at this time, um, God actually got praise as his people get another victory. That's the end of the riot. This is amazing to me. You know, I was, uh, my first lesson with uh, Fred uh, today was uh, by Facebook. And he were, we were talking about the sovereignty of God, and this is new to him. He's never understood the sovereignty of God and, and so I gave him, because he asked me, what do you mean by sovereignty of God? Give me a definition. So I gave him a definition. And, and then he asked, well, what, why is there so much trouble? Why is there so much um, confusion and things like that around about us that God is sovereign? And uh, I told him, because God is in control of it, even though you do not know that he's in control of it. And then he orchestrates it. He comes back and asks me a really good question. He says, well, then how, how should I pray? 
and, and, and so I said, you just don't have to pray that the will of God be done. It, it's not what you will. It's not how you will. And he, he writes back and he goes, okay, then I think I will try that. <laughs> that's that's a good thing to try, isn't it? <laughs> that's good. It's really amazing to me that he, in his simple, simple mind, that's in simplicity. Sounds teachable. Yeah, he's just, he's so, yeah, he's humble, very teachable, and and uh, and his, his questions are very sincere. Uh, and so I'm just really amazed about that. But, you know, I'm just thinking about that in this story here, how that how that God was in complete control over it, even though Satan has such chaos. Hmm. And that's the way demonic things are, is that they're chaos. They're always confusion. They don't make sense. Hmm. And, and that's that's what it was doing right there. But God was letting them be the fool. And then he came through and he showed himself. Hmm. <coughs> that's the way God does it all the time. Yeah. You know, he just does it that way. If you're a Christian and you're in the middle of this riot, in one sense, it's like you could almost be scared to death. Yeah, What's going to happen? Are they going to feed us to the lions here? Paul was getting all, Paul was getting all riled up here with it. Yeah. And he didn't even get to participate. They just pulled him right back. That's right. That's right. Matter of fact, they must have known. Uh, it says that uh, he knew them. You know, they were, So him being the citizen that he was, I think they respected him. They didn't want to see him get beat up and... They had somebody that he's seen as a witness to that, you know, the character of those people. Yeah. yeah. What they were about. You know, with God orchestrating our lives and not knowing what direction God's taken us this over. Um, how, how many times I went down this dirt road to take my son to school? And for some reason, by looking at the cattle, caused me to remember something. And it was something that God wanted me to remember. I remember when I was a teenager, about 19 years old. I was coming back from a revival. I was driving down this country road. It was pitch dark. Bended and turned around. I came across this bend, turned around the bend, and there was two cows that were in the road. One was in my lane, and the other was in the other lane. And I go, oh boy, I am fixing to meet my wife. But before I got there, I I, I slammed on my brakes, but I was going about 55, 65 miles an hour, or 55, 60. And God took a hold of my steering wheel and and swerved me around. I know it wasn't me. I know I could never have done that. But he got me through those cows, never touched either one of them, and and, and was on the other side of it. I shared it with my son. And I and I wanted him to understand that, that God was in control. Well, as I came back, coming back, God ministered to my spirit and says, No, I gave that for you. Mm-hmm. I wanted you to know that. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, What do you mean? And so what, what God ministered to me is that I am in control and I will maneuver you any way that I want to maneuver you. And I, and I will take you the direction that I want to take you. And so by him sharing that with me, helped me to understand that even though it seems like everything is chaotic, every, nothing seems to be working out, uh, we're still not sure where we're going, we're not sure what's happening. But God gave me that to reassure me that I am in control and I will maneuver you any way that I need to. Some 40 years later or whatever. Yeah. You, you still haven't forgotten it, right? And God reminds me. I never thought about that. It's been years since I thought about that. So God reminded me of it. I will maneuver you. He always does. I mean, he, that's a relationship that, you know, that uh, it, it is personal, isn't it? That, uh, and He does little things, does big things. How many times some of us might, might have had our lives uh, saved when we thought we were done whether it be in a car or Absolutely. other things. And uh, I bet everybody has a story, but I'm, I'm telling you when, you, when you think about it, you probably look back and you go, boy, the Lord was really in that one, wasn't He? He always is. Absolutely. He's right, right, right here acknowledging He likes what we're talking about because it's about Him. That's what it's about. And when you, when you thread the, the sovereignty in on everything and in every section that you deal with, even when you know you don't hear a lot about God here and great doctrinal truths, it's all right there, isn't it? 
So He is such a good God. Well, thank you guys for coming out. Are there any other thoughts there? It's really rewarding. <laughs> That's right. Something very, very little that meant so much at a time. You just know, Sometimes when you don't have any money, it doesn't look like you're going to have anything, and you, you owe, and you're in a desperate situation, and you don't, you can't buy flowers or anything, and all of a sudden some moss roses come up out of nowhere <laughs> in a place where you had nothing, no trees, no plants, nothing, just uh, mud. And... Bob, can you can you close this down? Sure. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, want to thank you for this time together and for uh, gracious gracious teaching about the early church and how we might uh, apply apply this to our own uh, lives and the way that uh, we see things going on around us in the world and how you're working. You're always working in, in the church and in the world. And uh, Father, we know that uh, you always have your own that you are um, that you are drawing to you and that you are saving. And we pray for those. And uh, so, Father, in this uh, evening, uh, where the rain is falling now tonight, and uh, you're bringing spring to our land. In the season of this, uh, this part of the world, we want to thank you for that, and uh, also, Lord, um, we just pray that uh, the love of the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with each one in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.